Years ago, filmmaker and director Elena Engel began collaborating with actor and producer John Leguizamo on a film project that would become John Leguizamo Live at Rikers. The film documents John Leguizamo's one-man performance of his play Ghetto Clown for inmates at Rikers Island Correctional Facility. In the play, John discusses the adversity he faced growing up. The film simultaneously weaves together conversations between John and justice-involved young men at Rikers. Together, they discuss the serious challenges of incarceration, their stories, and their hopes for the future as they await trial or sentencing. Elaine and John initially met at an event for the organization Getting Out and Staying Out that the participants in the film are enrolled in. We wanted to highlight anti-recidivist programs. That's what John and I wanted from the very beginning. What I could hope for is that people will look at this and will understand that there is hope for justice-involved young people to move on, to adapt a new uh, approach to life, a new paradigm, so that we don't have to see this recycling. Elena and I discussed the process of making the film at Rikers, collaborating with John Leguizamo on the film, the need for change in the criminal justice system, and creating an impactful film while highlighting the importance of re-entry programs such as Getting Out and Staying Out. That's coming up in a moment. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this is CME Presents, where we explore how the digital stories and media that we watch, listen to, and experience are created. I'm Jacob, and this is a conversation with Elena Engel. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Nice to finally meet you. A nice visually, to meet you I guess. too. Elena, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm excited to discuss the process of your film, John Leguizamo, Live at Rikers. Before we jump into that, you've mm -hmm. had a very prolific career, I think it's safe to say. And I'm wondering, you know, you've produced a lot of different formats of media. What was the process of moving into filmmaking and producing films such as this one? I started off in audio, in radio. I was working for National Public Radio and creating an original children's uh, radio show called Kid Wax for a station in Eugene, Oregon, back in the day. And we became one of the first nationally syndicated radio shows on NPR. Uh, that's dating me a little bit, but you know I have to do that these days because that's the reality of our life. So I started off there, and from there I got uh, a letter of interest from Walt Disney saying we would really like to talk to you about becoming a producer at the studio. Uh, what they called back back then book and tape, which were read-alongs for children. Suffice to say, I was hired to be the producer, and I moved down to L.A. from where I lived up in Oregon, and I ended up producing maybe 10 book and tapes, a lot of them classics, classic feature film stories, one of which was Fox and the Hound, and nice. I was nominated for a Grammy. From there... The division that was called the non-theatrical division hired me to come over and I knew nothing about filmmaking. I had never taken a filmmaking class and I had studied theater and acting. I ended up going over there and they said, okay, you're going to be making film for children. Was the goal ever in your life to make films? Was that even on the radar in terms of moving that space? No, absolutely not. That's a very good question. I was always interested in children's media. 
So it all began for me. I had a degree of uh, a background in developmental psychology, uh, majored in that. And I got my master's in creative dramatics, thinking that I was going to be doing therapy with children using theater. And I produced a radio piece and one thing led to another. And that's how I got into sound. And then when I got to the, the radio station, I was producing this program for them. And I ended up you know, like like a lot of NPR stations, there was not a lot of money and they wanted to keep me on as a producer. So I applied for a woman's grant, uh, technical grant from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting. And I was one of uh, 10 women around the country that received a grant to learn engineering. So there I was, I was suddenly I was in the studio in a different way. And I'm very grateful for that because it gave me, um, I think, much more of a a compass and a a perspective on what it took to create sound. So, you know, one thing sort of, it just, everything just kind of like, you know, progressed. One door opened and uh, I went in and another door opened and I went in. And when I went over to film at Disney, what I did have under my belt and uh, like to talk about a lot is... Uh, a love of story and just an instinctual and kind of and honed. Uh, and I think uh, editing sound material was an extremely uh, good thing for me to have been doing because it really taught me a lot about rhythm, timing, you know, editing, uh, editing story. That was my cushion when I went over. And I was in a position of being sort of an executive producer and a development person. So I was able to hire really good people in Los Angeles to line produce my films. And from there, we just started winning awards right and left. And I helped, I was on the first team um, at Disney to start the Disney Channel. So I, I was on the first creative team. That was very cool. That was really fun. It seems like a very big jump from the audio space to creating films. Was there apprehension there or right away you felt like you'd found your footing? Having been a director and having developed projects and working in preparation to make films, working with very good people. I always used to say that my definition of a good producer is somebody who hires the right people and gets the hell out of their way. And, you know, I had very good people. I had some really excellent people that went on to, had already made feature films, went on to make feature films. So I learned from everybody that I hired and I worked with. You know, being at Disney, you really were expected, no matter how much time you spent on the set, you expected to be back at the water cooler Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. because you're working for a corporation. And so I've always said to younger people in my life, you know, who are in going after this business, it's like if you get a chance to work for a company, a corporation, I think that there are advantages to that. You learn a lot about the politics. You learn a lot about negotiation. You, you learn what you can and cannot do with your skills and with other people's skills. So I'm, I, you know, despite the fact that I was paid nothing, I was very grateful to Walt Disney <laughs> for being a breeding ground, you know, for my career. It's about the life lessons, I guess, not the money in that context. It was definitely, you know, you're young enough to just say, I am thrilled and and honored to have this experience to be around the people that um, I'm getting like phenomenal creative exposure to. 
And I'm also getting a broader, more global perspective on what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. I mean, I produced films that are, I have to tell you, so many years later still being sold at Disney, even though the educational division, uh, the non-theatrical division is no longer in existence. Because what I saw going into the work was a need for kind of a, a niche for social issue films. So we had, we had a lot of, we started to have a lot of support for making inroads uh, in material with material that mattered. And that, I think that that kind of, you know, established my interest as well in trying to make films that matter. In many ways, it, it seems like from my outside perspective that that was kind of paving the way towards this film that we're talking about today, John Alexander Live at Rikers, in terms of this is obviously a social issue piece. Um, and, you know, as you discussed, you spent many years making work. Why was now the time to create this piece with John Alexamo? Well, it's, it wasn't now, um, except the post-production was now. Post-production took place the last year and a half in preparation for launching the film. We actually shot the film 10 years ago. Did you really? Yes, we did. That's crazy because really... the cinematography holds up amazingly. I would have never even considered that it was shot that long ago. Oh, yeah. I, I had the reason why I think the cinematography holds up. God, there's so much to say here. I had five red cameras at Rikers, um, five camera operators who were all hugely professional, had so much experience, were basically had done feature films and commercials and were so excited about the project and passionate about it, they did it for free. So I was able to pull together a crew of pro bono talented folks. I had a DP, Fortunata Procopio, who was magnificent. It was really wonderful. Um, and so the work sat there for a long time. So for a moment, let's go back 10 years, if we're able to, when the filmmaking process started. How did the process of collaborating with John Leguizamo in creating this film begin? It's also a personal story for me. And you might have heard me say that uh, that night. Um, somebody that, what was the inspiration? Somebody uh, I love very much in this world um, was sentenced to prison for a nonviolent offense. And, you know, it was his the harsh trajectory of his life and uh, mine that forced me to realize uh, the lack of dignity and inhumanity in, in that world. And incarceration was a very, you know, a, a, and, and still remains to be a very difficult thing in his life. So it's, it's sad, but, you know, many people coming out of prison, they, they encounter a vicious cycle, um, not the opportunities of real freedom. You know, um, if they lack education and they can't get a job and they're likely to uh, to repeat the patterns of their past and reoffend, uh, the statistics are scary. Uh, something like 80% of people who get out of prison um, return within three years. John and I were supporters of an organization called Getting Out and Staying Out. It's an anti-recidivist organization in Harlem. At that started. time, do you know John beforehand, or is that where you no, meet? No, 
No, I met you want to hear that story? I met kind someone of, yeah. at a party. No, I do. <laughs> kind of? Or no, 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 I definitely do. I'm just being um, coy. I, okay. No, I met him at a, a, a party, actually, um, that was being put on by the founder of Getting Out and Staying Out, Mark Goldsmith, fabulous man. He has a story of his own and how he got to to start this program. And we were talking, we were introduced, and we both had spent time in Hollywood and I asked him if he had gone to Rikers yet to perform. And he said, yeah, he said, I went there. I said, so are you interested in going back? And he said, yeah, I really would be. I said, okay. So we fisted and said, let's try to make this happen. And um, so that we can support the organization and its, its direction. And um, I then went about attending meetings at the DOC, New York City Department of Corrections, and for four months constant meetings, trying to convince them that we they should allow us to come in and allow John to bring a little bit of laughter to a place in which laughter is not often heard. And for us to interview some of the uh, justice-involved young men that were involved in getting out and staying out already. They were already in the program. So finally they agreed. And that's when I went to work pre-production and pulled this all together. And we marched into Rikers and we were there for three days. As you, as you're planning this with John, I mean, what strikes me about the film, and I think we talked about this a bit before, Mm -hmm. but, you know, as a viewer who doesn't know what to expect, I see John Leguizamo in the title and it says live at Rikers. And I'm thinking, okay, is this going to be a concert film you know, featuring John Alexamo, which mm-hmm. would be valid in its own right. But you start watching and you start to realize that in a way that kind of just feels like the hook. We see John performing his play Ghetto Clown, but the footage of him performing is cross-cut with scenes of him speaking with inmates and, you know, young men who are incarcerated. When you start planning this film, did you already have in mind that this film would explore larger topics than just the topics that John explores in his play, but rather, I guess, a larger exploration of the criminal justice system and what happens to these young men that we often don't really hear about. Oh, um, where, where do I begin with that? Um, I knew that this was going to be um, the map of this film. I knew that we would go back and forth. What I didn't know is that I was going to end up with 20 hours worth of material and try to break it down to a 26-minute short documentary. Not easy. Um, You know, you've heard that adage, if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. Right. Right? Well, that's what this experience was. I had my producer, Ben Konigsberg, brilliant filmmaker, um, really helped with that process, uh, as did our editors and uh, co-director. And we went at it, we knew that we wanted to not that we wanted the film to speak for itself. We didn't want to get into the politics. Okay. This is more uh, at getting out and staying out. They have, and it's in the film, you've seen it. They promote the three E's, which are education, um, employment, and emotional support as being the magic formula for keeping these guys from returning to this prison life. And our film, I knew from the very beginning, partially I would say because of my personal experience 
I wanted this to really focus on the emotional um, context of the subject and not so much the political. I didn't want to talk about victims. I didn't, I didn't want to know what these guys did. I never knew what they did. I didn't want their last names to be shared because they have, they're going forward with, um, they were not sentenced yet. They had not even gone to court. So they were waiting. They, they were in the George motion um, facility, which, you know, like that one, one young man said, you know, I've been here for three years and they're not going to institutionalize me. They may lock me up, but they're not going to institutionalize me. I wanted people to experience, have a visceral experience of what it was like for, for, for these guys to not hide behind their truth as John encourages them to do um, with his own autobiographical material and his own issues and demons um, shared with them in the play. I wanted them to just be themselves and to be, and, and John and I wanted most of all for them to have the experience of being treated with dignity because that doesn't happen in prison. You're not, you're not, you're not treated with dignity. And, and with dignity, we knew that if they had an opportunity to talk about what was most important to them, that there was richness in that experience for them personally, but also for the audience. We wanted the audience to feel what it was like to have the challenge of being imprisoned, despite the fact of what they did. Uh, that's the, hum the human part of it. That was the humanity part of it. So that's, that was really the focus. And in a way, that focus made our job easier. I've made a lot of short films in my life. I've made about 26 of those films. And I, I think um, I've thought a lot about how short films are like short stories. You know, uh, comparing the two, is a, it's a very interesting exercise. And with short stories, I think you need to really know from the get-go what you want to say. And you don't want to say very much. You know, you want to let the subject speak for the theme. You know, it was my hope for this film that we accomplished that. Uh, John shared very intimate aspects of his life and his challenges in life, the fact that he was, you know, he was uh, arrested. He shared um, shared his demons, you know. And at the same time, he said, "You guys, don't hide behind the truth." You know, the sooner you get to that, the sooner your life will change, and you will have a different perspective. And that's what we wanted for the people who see this film. You know, for for them to kind of capture a glimpse of another perspective you know, to realize that the, you know, that the feelings of people who have served or who are serving time in prison, you know, aren't much different than our own. Because I think society as a whole says, I'm not a criminal, so why should I care? It's interesting you mentioned this idea of a short film as a short story, because I'm watching this piece that feels very successful and self-contained as a short and there's, you know, an extreme emotional weight to it and it feels impactful. But you also mentioned that you had 20 hours of footage and I'm wondering if you ever thought about making this a longer form film and what convinced you that this film should be a shorter duration or if you're already convinced then that never changed. 
I'm convinced now. I'm really glad that it's a shorter film. I'm not saying it would have been easier. It did, it did start off, the rough cut was an hour. My producer, Ben Konigsberg, he said, just make this about this experience. Let's keep it that. And we'll have John's performance, which was amazing. And he was very nervous about going to Rikers, by the way. It was like he wasn't sure how his material would be received. And he did brilliantly. He put so much into it, so much of himself did a beautiful job of performing. And it was only 45 minutes worth of material uh, of, of the original Broadway play, Ghetto Clown, and the documentary, which was on, I think it was on HBO Max or Netflix, I can't remember, for years. And it's still relevant. When you're filming in that space, when you're filming Rikers and you're filming these scenes with John and the inmates, and they have very intimate discussions about where they've been and where they hope to be. How do you create a space when you have limited time that feels safe and intimate? And I guess I was just struck by how open they were and how open John was in this environment that oftentimes does not support open dialogue or conversation. I, let's see, start from the beginning. When we were there, I prepared my, my, my crew. Uh, there were a lot of rules and regulations that were kind of dire. We had to be really careful and security and the whole thing and behavior and all of that. And I very, I very quickly realized how restrictive this was going to be. I, I couldn't go to the bath. I was one of two women. Abigail Fuller was the other woman um, on the crew. And we couldn't go to the bathroom without five guards, you know? So I start, I very quickly reala realized that they were worried about us. And that I realized that was going to be a challenge to your point. That was going to be a challenge because I didn't want these guys to feel uncomfortable. They already had established a relationship with um, the social workers at getting out and staying out and the psychologists at the prison. So they were prepared and they were, they, they volunteered. They really wanted to do this. They were excited to meet John and especially after they saw the, 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 the show and they realized he was really, he had been one of them and there was so much that they could relate to. But we placed a couple of aisles worth of our subjects in the auditorium first, right after we shot the play and the exit of the prisoners and all that. And several officers came up to me and said, no matter what you do, don't, touch them don't really get into a conversation with these guys um like they had a disease you know don't don't do this don't do that and there's probably there were good security reasons for that i understood but i remember thinking to myself if i don't establish a relationship that's personal with them and that touches them in some way they are not going to open up and john was on the same plate he knew that as well too he knew he needed to like just be, you know, be with them, be with them. So I promptly said, okay, and turned around and walked over to these guys and one by one took their hands, not just a shake, but this, and thanked them, asked them their name and thanked them for coming, went all the way down the line. And I did that with the guys that were in the, um, in the classroom as well. So we had two, two scenes, um, two different places, environments that they, we did our interviews with. And I interacted with them, as did, as did John and everybody else. It was just like, kind of like, oh, here we are. We're like making a film. 
And, you know, everybody, on both sides of the experience, we were all moved. Like, I'll tell you a cute anecdote. At the end, some of the prisoners were working in the garden and growing flowers. And they took these Coca-Cola cans and they cut them off and filled them with water. And they cut some of the flowers, put them in the Coke can, gave them to me, one to me, and I think one to Abigail. Anyway, so we're out, everything's done. We're outside. I'm sitting on a wall with John and we're kind of processing. And I look over and he has one of, I don't have mine, but he's got one of the, the cans with the flowers in it. And I said, wait a minute, those are my flowers. And he goes, no, they're not. They're mine. <laughs> you know? he, wanted, he wanted to have, you know, something physical from, from this experience that, that was so touching. You mentioned that, you know, you had personal experiences with someone who was incarcerated. And I'm wondering, is it challenging to, or do you feel the need to even compartmentalize when you're making a film about this topic and your job is to record this and carve this story that, you know, affects people while also dealing with your own personal understanding of this? Nobody knew what I was going through. I made a point of not telling anyone. I told John later, many years later, I didn't even really think about it so much. I just wanted to do it. I, I wanted to know what that environment was like because I couldn't be there for the person um, uh, that was experiencing that, who was there, who was in prison at the time. And I, I, needed, I needed to understand what, what it was like. I needed that I could be in a prison environment and be experiencing it myself on this level for the purpose, for the reasons why I was doing it. But I didn't really, I just kind of did it. You know, I didn't really, I didn't really think of, until later when I, when I looked at the footage, and that was the blessing of, of having that drive sit in my closet here in my office for so long until, you know, Ben walked in and said, you know, can I take a look at it? And I, I, it probably gave me that space to be able to do the post and to actually follow through because John really wanted us to make this film and I had just moved and moved to California. You know, I just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. So when I got, we got to the post-production, I was able to emotionally um, fe both feel it at the same time and remove myself from the experience. Do you feel like there's a specific reason why it took I mean, I don't know how many years it took to start editing, but it's, you said 10 years in full because you went, you and John clearly went in with an intent and then you're, mm -hmm. it's sitting on a hard drive, this footage. Why did it take so long? Well, like I said, I moved, um, money, you know, raising enough money to be able to do post, which was not inexpensive. And maybe a little bit of fear. Uh, uh, about accomplishing that. It had been a while since I had made a film. I lived abroad. Um, that was before we did this film, but I, there were periods of, of my life in which uh, I wasn't focused on making film. I was writing. Uh, I never I've never stopped writing and developing concepts, and I have several right now um, that I would love to, now that I've had this fabulous experience of getting this film done and having, you know, people... Uh, respond to it the way they're responding. I, I'm, 
I'm ready to keep going. I'm, it's like, it's, it's jumpstarting. I think a lot of filmmakers go through these periods where your know, life takes over, you know, you're either, and for a woman, you know, I call it the years of silence. I was raising young men, you know, young, young boys uh, in a, uh, a foreign environment. You know, I lived in Europe for many years. And so it wasn't so much that I wasn't inspired. It's just that I hadn't jumpstarted again. And I, and I needed that, I needed partnership. I needed people that wanted to do this with me. Because I think filmmaking, to me, anything like that is so, it's so much about community. It's so much about collaboration, which I love. I love working off of people and with people and arguing with people and making the right choices and putting yourself in, in a place where you know instinctually, you get in, in touch with your instincts about what you know is going to work or not work. And then to have that final recognition when it does work that, yeah, you still got it. You know, you still, you can hone in on what it takes to make something, you know, that matters. You know, I think people think that film is just kind of instantaneous. Right. It's not. I feel like especially now where everyone is just popping content out on, on various streaming oh. platforms, everyone just assume it's like born and appears out of dust and is there in 10 seconds. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think the, the upside of the, the pandemic, I mean, I did everything remote. I'd never done a film remotely. I'd always been at my mix, my mixes, everything. I was always hands-on. This is remote for the most part, you know, there's this little computer that I have here. So, and people, people are making beautiful films with cell phones, you know, and, and um, the work that came out of the pandemic, I mean, I looked at the work that was at Tribeca and other film festivals I'm attending and I'm blown away. And these festivals are saying that we're getting more submissions than we've ever gotten before because we had the time to contemplate, to think about, getting things done. So I don't think it's, a, you know, I know that I blew your mind about the fact that I, I shot this film so many years ago, but you know, if it works, it works, right? Exactly. And, <laughs> and clearly it did. So did you make the call to John one day and you're like, oh, by the way, we're working on this film. How does, how does that go down after such a long recess? I sent him the rough cut. I surprised him. He was doing uh, a Netflix series in London and I get a phone call because he had called, we had talked over the years. Like, I think he gave up on me, basically, is what had, what had happened. And I sent him um, the rough cut, and he called me, and his, he had his wife look at it as well, too. And he said, we're in tears watching this. This is just brilliant. We are so blown away. Thank you so much. This is so great. And then, um, you know, he helped me find my composer, Chris Hagian, who is – beyond beyond just an amazingly talented person beautiful work yeah oh yeah he oh and he was a joy to work with god he was just really a very talented guy anyway so he he called uh, chris and said i can share this story with you i think he said well you know chris i told you one of these days and they'd done projects together a lot of them he said one of these days i was going to bring you a project that was going to bring you a lot of money he said but that's not this is not one of those days <laughs> so not today so, not today so you know there's out of the you know the graciousness of a lot of people this film came to be so john's been very i mean blown away actually very happy and very um supportive and responsive and 
he's getting a lot of recognition for the film. It's interesting, you know. Um, he didn't want that at first. He, he, he didn't want this to be about him. He wanted the film to be about the guys. And I think it's both. You know, I think, I think it works on both levels. Going into that, you mentioned that you had this wonderful premiere at Tribeca with the film. <laughs> Did you have specific goals after completing the film of what you wanted out of it, what it was going to do or how it was going to impact people or the visibility of it? The visibility of it, I'll start with that now. Uh, I, I, to begin with, yeah, I really would love for this to be distributed uh, through um, a main streamer, if at all possible. We're in the process of trying to do that. We're in the process of trying to sell the film. I think, you know, just judged by the reaction of the audiences we've been around, I, I think people really want to see it. And of course, uh, he's very popular now. He's doing some amazing, he's always done amazing work forever and ever. Um, somebody told me he's been in over a hundred films and he's now very involved in Latino programming and his company, his new company that he's merged with. So it's very exciting times for him. And so we're hoping that we can get this film out to people. The purpose of the film, what I could hope for, my dream is that, again, people will look at this with a different perspective so that we don't have to see this recycling of prison and reform. This, the, the institution, the prison institutions in this country need, need a lot of attention, need a lot of work. Um, and there, there's so much disparity between them, between the states, between cities and the states, uh, in terms of sentencing and everything else in the criminal justice system. So criminal, it's about criminal justice reform. And I'm hoping that people will have a more em empathetic experience. And I'm hoping also that their perspective will inspire them to look into the subject going forward. That when it comes up in their purview, that they will pay more attention to it and they will think about having seen this film and seeing these guys laugh, sad, hopeful, heroes of their own stories, that they will come to understand that um, things need to be done differently going forward. That's what John and I wanted from the very beginning. We wanted to highlight programs like Getting Out and Staying Out and what they're trying to do anti-recidivist programs, and at the same time, give these guys the experience of laughter and dignity. You know, we, we lose a lot of people in the system. That's, that's it in a nutshell, you know. Elena, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this has been CME Presents. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Music is by Jacob Backer, William Hutchison, and Sean Sparacino. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review. And don't forget to check out our website at nyccenterformediaeducation.org for more information about media making and filmmaking classes.